If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 558. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Very glad to be back on the program. Glad to be here. Welcome to 2022. It's been about a month since I saw you last, and I'm excited to get 2022 started. If you're new to the show, you can support the Brian McClanahan Show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. You get that free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you do enroll. And you get the best deals on new and forthcoming courses. Not anything coming up very soon, but probably in the next couple of months, you're going to see a new McClanahan Academy course. And that's a great way to support the show. You can buy a class there. You keep this podcast free of charge. You can also click on that support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook, the same title read by yours truly. You can also support the show by clicking on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can purchase one of my products there with my logo on it. You can buy a book. I've got a number of those. My latest two are the Jeffersonian Tradition and Southern Scribblings. Those are all great ways to support the show. But as always, share the podcast around on social media. Rate it where you get your podcasts. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Let people know that 2022 is the year of thinking locally and acting locally. And as you can see, the studio has changed a little bit. It's much more similar to what it was when I started this podcast way, way back about five years ago. And so I've been in the process of moving. So that studio I was using for about a year is now gone. We've got this one still working out the kinks a little bit, but I wanted to get back on the show because, gosh, I mean, I wanted to get in the saddle. I've missed doing this. So welcome back to, to the show in a, in a new year. And I'm going to start this year with, uh, it seems like a broken record, and this is something that came up about middle of December because I wasn't uh, able to do the show then. I didn't get to address it. But this is a listener-generated episode, so if you want to hear something in particular, you can send me those show requests. I may not respond back to you, but I always read what you write. So I do appreciate all of that. You know, It is nice to get letters and emails from you uh, when you want to hear something. I want this show to be part of your life, and I want you to listen to it many times a week. So... This is, we're going to play a game today, and it's going to be, uh, which person are we talking about? A leftist progressive or a conservative? So this is a game today, and you get to decide if it's leftist or conservative. So I'm going to read you a couple of passages, and I want you to tell me, or at least think out loud. You can't tell me directly, but in your own mind, tell me, leftist, progressive, or conservative? So let me... Start with the first quotation, and it's this. Between fighting the armies of the English monarch, the Confederacy, the Nazis, the communists, and Islamic terrorists, something nearing a million Americans have died for the cause of equal rights. So in your mind, progressive or conservative? Then we have this butte. Calhoun and his followers sought to do the opposite, to insulate policy, or at least one policy, from popular will. Hence, 
disregarding majoritarianism was necessary to protect slavery and discarding individual rights already under attack as coercive to public support for slavery was required to dismiss majoritarianism. But Calhoun also stood that once the baby of equal natural rights was thrown out with the bathwater of majoritarianism, their faction needed a new basis for political legitimacy. Thus, he devised a new concept of rights, concurrent majoritarianism, more simply understood as group rights. Under this understanding, rights adhere not in individuals but in groups, Hence, collections of persons as a class based on some shared trait or self-identification may rightly block majority will for any reason. Majority will is thus limited not by individual minority rights, but by collective majority uh, interest. I'm sorry, minority interest. By what a minority wants, even especially when it can't get it by following the parchment's normal processes. Calhoun did not live to see the Confederacy, but the states that would form it took their momentous step under his tutelage, justifying their action with his doctrine. That action is sometimes offended on the ground that was a reaction to northern aggression and tyranny, no different than the American Revolution itself. After all, what was the latter if not secession from Britain? So again, think to yourself, conservative or progressive? And last but not least, this passage. This is a brazen challenge to our federal structure. It echoes the philosophy of John C. Calhoun, a virulent defender of the slaveholding South, who insisted that states had the right to veto or nullify any federal law with which they disagreed. Lest the parallel be lost, analogous sentiments were expressed in this case's companion, the Supreme Court's interpretation of the Constitution are not the Constitution itself. They are, after all, called opinions. The nation fought a civil war over that proposition, but Calhoun's theories were not extinguished. They experienced a revival in the post-war South, and the violence that ensued led Congress to enact Statute 1979-42 USC 1983. Proponents of the legislation noted that state courts were being used to harass and injure individuals, either because the state courts were powerless to stop deprivations or were in league with those who were bent upon abrogation of federally protected rights. Now, progressive leftist or conservative? One of the main things I've talked about in this podcast for the last uh, over a year, I mean longer than that, has been the stupidity of the neoconservative slash Straussian right. The belief that somehow, if we just use the same language of the left, we'll win. This goes back to Harry Jaffa's position that equality was conservative. And of course, Mel Bradford took him to task on that because it's not really a conservative principle. But I think Jaffa, and I've said this before, was making a case that uh, if the right could somehow steal this idea of equality, equal rights as being this conservative principle going all the way back to the founding, and if that was the case, then what we would have would be a situation where the, uh, 
this idea of equal rights, of equality under the law, these would become conservative principles and they would steal the thunder of the left and therefore the left would have no position to stand on. Because in Jaffa's mind, the left had taken this and they were beating the right because they espouse this position of equality. Now, Mel Bradford correctly pointed out this is all stupid. It's hogwash. It's, it's not conservative. But, of course, Jaffa spawned all kinds of quote-unquote conservative intellectuals, and those conservative intellectuals are now running most of the major quote-unquote conservative think tanks and institutions in America. The Straussians, the West Coast Straussians in particular, the East Coast Straussians are also really bad. And, of course, their intellectual cousins, the neoconservatives. They don't like it when you call them neoconservatives. No, 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 Michael Anton, very bristled. I'm not a neoconservative. They don't like me. Well, I mean, Michael Anton is correct that he's, uh, he's not advocating uh, imperialism. I mean, that's so... If all we're going to look at is foreign policy, then, yeah, these Straussians like Michael Anton are not in line with uh, the neoconservatives on foreign policy. I mean, Anton just wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago uh, very critical of uh, American intervention in Taiwan, for example. It's a good piece. The problem is Michael Anton doesn't realize that every time he writes something that adheres to the proposition nation myth of America, he's giving the game to the left. You see, one of these things I read to you was written by Michael Anton. One of these things I read to you was written by, written by Larry Arn, the president of Hillsdale College. And one of these things I read to you was written by Justice Sotomayor in a recent case over the Texas law, making it very difficult to get abortions in Texas. But notice the villain in all three, or at least in two of them, the villain was John C. Calhoun. Notice that in one of the three, Equal rights became conservative. This was something America fought for, and the Confederacy was against equal rights. You see, the North was fighting for equal rights, the South against equal rights. The South were no better than Nazis or Islamic terrorists. You see, this is what they are. Now, of these, which one do you think was written by a quote-unquote conservative? In fact, two of them were. One of them was written by a leftist. So if you've read these before, you probably already know this. But the last one I read to you was written by Justice Sotomayor. The first by Larry Arn, and the second by Michael Anton. The second passage came from uh, Michael Anton's book, The Stakes, which, of course, every conservative talking head, this is such a good book. Look, And Anton goes out of his way in this particular book to say that he's not bashing the South. He doesn't, he believes the South is because we have all these good people down there, but these Southerners really are now just Lincolnites. They don't really, they're not real, they're, they're not Southerners from the past. They're new Southerners. They're Lincolnites. And you see, this is the same kind of argument that a lot of Straussians and neoconservatives were make. We're just trying to save the South from itself. We're not bashing the South. We love the South, but only the South that agrees that you know what? John C. Calhoun is the American Hitler. Now, I've talked a lot about Calhoun on this program. I've talked a lot about how Calhoun is viewed as the American Hitler and how this is just completely stupid. But here you have evidence that these individuals, Larry Arn, Michael Anton, and of course, Michael Anton, uh, I think, works at times for Hillsdale College. 
and uh, then Justice Sotomayor are all playing the same game on the same field. And do you think that Larry Arn and Michael Anton are going to win that game? They obviously do. They think they're going to win this game. They think if they say these things, oh, I mean, all the groups that would oppose conservatives are going to come flocking to them. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I mean, this is all. I mean, John C. Calhoun, you agree John C. Calhoun is bad, and uh, we're going to have this really great conservative coalition based on equal rights, and these lefties are just a bunch of dopes. They really believe this stuff. And I've seen Michael Anton get up and say it well. I mean, if we if we if we don't talk about this, then then uh, I mean, what what kind of place do you want? This was his response to me. Obviously, you just believe in slavery. You believe in these things. Of course, this is the same thing the left would say. This is the whole point. I think Michael Anton was too dense to get what I'm saying. He can't understand it for some reason, because what he does by saying the exact thing that he wrote in his book, The Stakes, is destroy American conservatism. If he wants to say American conservatism is Lockean Enlightenment philosophy, guess what he's done? He's just said American conservatism isn't conservatism at all. If he wants to say that American conservatism is Abraham Lincoln, then we don't have American conservatism. We have American uh, 19th century progressivism as conservatism. And essentially, that's what we have today. That is what's masquerading as American conservatism. Real American conservatism? Real republicanism with a lowercase r, that's gone. It doesn't exist in any major party. It doesn't exist in conservative ink. It doesn't exist in your think tanks. It doesn't exist except for a few organizations. But it's gone. And it's gone because of people like Michael Anton and Larry Arn. You see, what Sotomayor was doing here is saying, look, This Texas case is bad. This decision is bad because it's John C. Calhoun. It's states' rights. It's nullification. And that's just a bunch of radical right-wing nonsense. What Michael Anton did was say, look, the good guys, or I should say, let's just start with Larry Arn. Larry Arn saying the good guys were fighting the bad guys. The good guys like Lincoln and all the Union soldiers They were fighting the evil confederacy. They were fighting all these bad guys who didn't believe in equal rights. Now, if you had asked a confederate soldier, if you'd asked someone who was in the confederate government in 1861 or 1862, do you believe in equal rights? That's a a complex question. They would have certainly said they don't believe in equal rights, that uh, all people are created equal, but you could have asked the same question to a northerner and they would have said the exact same thing. You could have asked that question of a conservative Democrat in the North and they would have said, no, this is not what they believe in. But they do believe in equal rights. They believe in equal rights for citizens, equality under the law for citizens. This is what they believe in. So you wouldn't have had someone in the South say they didn't believe in equal rights. They would have qualified it. And so would have northerners. In fact, most northerners would have said that exact same thing. And we know this because uh, Lincoln wasn't even saying that he believed in equal rights in 1861. He knew he couldn't get elected on that platform. He knew he couldn't. You can't win in the North on that. They won uh, by 39. They got 39.6% of the popular vote in 1860. A minority, which Anton does correctly point out, the minority won that election in that same chapter. The majority, the majority did not win that election. 
1860. The majority voted against Abraham Lincoln. So if you're saying that somehow the concurrent majority, the concurrent majority led to the war, actually it would be a minority faction which controlling the government led to the war. That's the Republican Party, a minority faction. In fact, I could, you could probably argue that, uh, and I think it has been argued, that had the South stayed in the Union, none of this stuff, the 13th Amendment never would have happened. You would have had some kind of compromise. Lincoln would have vetoed something, but you would have had something. There would have been some compromise there. I don't think that the North had enough votes to uh, simply block slavery forever. We had a Supreme Court decision, that uh, the Dred Scott decision, that said slavery exists everywhere in, in the territories. It, you, can't, you can't block it. So what would Lincoln have done? The majority was actually on the South's side at that particular point. Now, again, 2022, 21st century, we'll look at that and say, well, that's a bad thing. Everyone can agree with that. But in 1860 and 61, most Americans would not have said that. So who really was the minority at that particular time? In fact, the Lincoln regime was the minority. The Lincoln regime was the side that would have been nullifying, essentially, using the concurrent majority, the factional position that would have thwarted the will of the majority in America. There were Southerners standing up in secession conventions, particularly in Georgia, and saying, this is suicide. If we leave, what, if, if you really want to protect slavery, if we leave, we're going to destroy it. There's no attack coming from anywhere. In fact, you had the 13th Amendment put forward. We can keep slavery permanent in the southern states where it already exists. The question was, though, the territories and the southerners, and, and Anton gets this right, the southern, southerners said, well, look, this is really the question. It's slavery extension of the territories, though even people like Jefferson Davis said, you know, I'm not so sure it's really going to do much in the territories. For years, you know, Jefferson Davis's uh, uh, father-in-law, Zachary Taylor, essentially said this. I don't think it's going to exist out there. Daniel Webster had said this. I mean, people did not believe that slavery could exist in what's today Arizona or New Mexico. It, it would have been a different institution. Some Southerners did believe it could be a, a different institution and exist and thrive in any kind of condition. Others were not so certain because of plantation agriculture and other things. But it was simply all about protecting the institution of slavery. And the war was a bad move. Secession was a bad move. But there are bigger issues going on there. And of course, a lot of it had to do with political economy and uh, the interpretation of the Constitution. These were things that were at stake. But again, you look at the evil guy. You look at the guy that everyone points to, and it's John C. Calhoun. The neoconservatives, the Straussians, all they do is point to Calhoun as the supreme evildoer in America. And so does the progressive left. So where's the difference? For years, Calhoun was considered one of the most important of all American conservatives. Russell Kirk included him in the conservative mind. He was an important figure in American conservatism. It's why Clyde Wilson and I included him in our book, Forgotten Conservatives in American History. This was the point. The point was to ensure that people remember that John C. Calhoun was a Republican. You see, this is what Anton, this is what Arne, this is what Jaffa, this is what all these people missed. Calhoun wasn't some oligarch. Calhoun was a Republican. This is what he said his entire life with the lowercase r. He believed in Republican institutions. He came up with a concurrent majority because he rightly understood that the Constitution would fail 
all the time. In fact, what he viewed the concurrent majority as doing is putting teeth into the Tenth Amendment. Because you see, as he said, and as we see every single time we have a transition of power in America, the party out of power will use the Constitution to their advantage. This is all unconstitutional. This is a violation of the Constitution. When Donald Trump was in office, the Democrats sounded like strict constructionists at times. You can't do this. You can't do that. Now that their guy Joe Biden's in office, not not a word about anything having to do with the Constitution. And the Republicans are playing the same game. Some Republicans were consistent. People like Thomas Massey. But there are very few that were consistent in this regard. Most were inconsistent and still are inconsistent. They don't care about the Constitution. It only is a paper or a parchment shield when they're not in power. And this is exactly what Calhoun said. So he wanted to come up with a way that uh, you could enforce what the written Constitution is supposed to do, and that is limit the powers of government. You see, the concurrent majority would do that. It would limit the powers of government. It would limit unconstitutional legislation because you could block just about anything. One group could say this is unconstitutional. It's not a good law. Now, what would that do? It would severely restrict the power of the general government. They really couldn't do much. In fact, this is exactly what Calhoun said the Constitution is supposed to be. So if you're a conservative and you're someone that believes in limited government power, limited federal power, and you're someone that believes in strict construction, isn't that what you really want? Don't you really want the Constitution to be limited? Don't you want the federal government to abide by the strict limitations that it has? Well, if you say yes, then if the federal government passes any unconstitutional law, it should be no law. It's exactly what Calhoun was getting at. That's real Republican government. So is, the, is he the American Hitler or some type of Nazi? This is what Larry Arn essentially is saying. John C. Calhoun is the American Hitler. Look, he's lumped in with Islamic terrorists and, and Nazis. All these bad guys. He's just that guy. John C. Calhoun would say Arn is full of it. So is Harry Jaffa. They don't even understand him. Why? Because they're playing a political game. They think by saying what Larry Arn said, well, critical race theory is bad. The whole quote was, let me, let me go back to the whole quote there, because he, he's actually talking about uh, critical race theory. He says this, in schools throughout Virginia, including Loudoun County, children are being subjected to critical race theory, CRT. This involves lecturing children, especially those belonging to the non-preferred races, about the structural evils of which they are told they are part. Being taught alongside CRT is a distorted view of the history of our country, which, true enough, has its warts, but which surely has its glories as well, including glories about equal rights regardless of race. And then he says, is between fighting the armies of the English monarch, the Confederacy, the Nazis, the communists, and Islamic terrorists. Think about that. The Confederacy are just as bad as the Nazis, the communists, and the Islamic terrorists. These are people, many of whom were descended from Thomas Jefferson, Men like Thomas Jefferson, George Mason, George Washington's family. (laughs) Oh yeah, they're just as bad as Nazis and communists and Islamic terrorists, real Americans that had been here for a couple of hundred years at that point. But no, 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 these people are just communists and Islamic terrorists. It's the same thing. Think about how the left has framed this January 6th quote-unquote insurrection. It's an insurrection. uh, And this is what essentially the conservatives are doing with the Confederacy. 
This is what conservatives are doing with Americans who had a disagreement about the powers of the central authority. And if you look at the Confederate Constitution, it's clear where their differences were. Not just on slavery, but a number of other things. And so, and I, in fact, I've made the case on this show, if you're listening the first time, I've made this case before, the Confederate Constitution and the U.S. Constitution are, are uh, indistinguishable when it comes to the issue of slavery. It's just the, the Confederate Constitution uses the term, the U.S. Constitution is not. They have the exact same powers over the institution, which is none. And uh, the states had all the power in both situations to get rid of the institution. States could abolish slavery in the Confederacy just as they could abolish it in the United States as well. And the central government had no power to abolish it. Now, Calhoun, interestingly enough, did say in his positive good speech that he believed the Confederacy could abolish, I'm sorry, the United States could abolish slavery because if they can pass, for example, an unconstitutional tariff, what's to stop them from passing a law to do something else? This is the same kind of argument men like Adonis Burke made when it came to taxes. Well, if you can pass an unconstitutional tax, you can pass anything you want which actually is a true statement. So unconstitutional, who cares about that? This is Calhoun's whole position on nullification, which Sotomayor points out, and of course, a concurrent majority. This is why I say these Straussians, these neocons are destroying conservatism in America because there's no conservatism without real republicanism and real constitutionalism. You can't have it. It's impossible. Now, we can talk about the powers of the central authority. We have, and I'm going to get into some of these things as I start rolling here in January. People have sent me articles they want me to comment on with uh, some of these new conservative ideas running around out there, new definitions for conservatism and some other things. So I'll talk about that. But Calhoun is not the American Hitler. In fact, Calhoun is, in many ways, I mean, this is what uh, Daniel Webster called him, the last of the Romans. While Rome survived, he was the last of the Republicans of the founding generation. And I say Republicans with a lowercase r. He was one of the last of the Jeffersonians in the antebellum period. John Randolph of Roanoke didn't think he was a purist. The old Republicans didn't trust him. But Calhoun certainly, for much of his political career, was dedicated to the same principles that those men advocated. And slavery, of course, was an issue for Calhoun. And we could talk about, we could do a whole podcast just on that and what Calhoun thought about that. But um, the way that the right frames it and the way that the left frames it is exactly the same thing. You can't win speaking the same language. You can't beat the left playing their game on their field by their rules. And so by saying this about Calhoun, well, I mean, we have this. See, everything that gets bad goes back to Calhoun. The, the left will say the same thing. So whereas American, if American conservatism is simply 19th century liberalism, then we've already lost. If that's what it is, we've already lost. There is no American conservatism. And maybe that's the position. Maybe American conservatism is leftist. Maybe Lewis Hartz was right. There is no American conservative tradition. It's all just some type of uh, enlightened political tradition coming out of John Locke or some of the enlightened thinkers. But even Jefferson said otherwise. Jefferson actually would go back to the earliest evidence of uh, English government. And of course, that would be the Magna Carta. These are the things they talked about, the ancient constitutions. It wasn't John Locke. It was the Magna Carta. That was important. That tradition was important. So I wanted to address these today because I think that uh, 
know, this is just really important stuff. And I want to get back in the saddle with this. And I, again, good to be back in 2022. This background will probably change just a little bit. I'm still working on the lighting and other things, but I certainly wanted to do this again and get back in the saddle, back on the air. So hope you enjoyed this podcast. I'll see you for the next one. See you then.